0: Good morning, everybody. It's good to be sitting with everybody. Silent sitting. New year, new start. Right? And so last week we got into for the first Tayshow of the Year uh, the three turnings of the wheel of Buddhism, the three major transformations that Buddhism has gone through as it's come down to us through the millennium. And so I thought, let's just continue with basic Buddhism. Let's, um, it's not often at a Zen center, uh, you'll hear too much about basic Buddhism, you'll hear about Zen. And, um, but I thought, there are so many of us that are new here beginning stages of practice that it can be helpful to sort of just go back to the basics, go back to the beginning. So I thought today we'll look at the Eightfold Path, the Eightfold Noble Path. But to, before we do, to reorient ourselves, to kind of set the table, so to speak, let's remind ourselves where the Eightfold Path comes from. It comes out of the Four Noble truths. Life, number one. Life is inherently dissatisfying. That's the great realization that the Buddha had, that even when you get the circumstances of your life straight, it's not about that. It's still inherently dissatisfying, or this word suffering is tossed about, uh, but really it's about this constant um, and things are just not quite right. If I could only get this in place, then I would be fine. Okay, so that's low-grade suffering. And that suffering become comes out of our craving. The craving for things to be different than the way they are. That we want things, our life, our circumstances to be different. And traditionally, this has been um, outlined in a way that I think is quite helpful for, for me, anyway, uh, it's, been, it's been sort of delineated as four types of positions that you can find yourself in. We're always with someone we don't want to be with. Number one. Number two, we're not with somebody that we do want to be with. We are doing something we don't want to be doing or we're not doing something we want to be doing. Isn't that a wonderful summation? (laughs) It kind of sums up our day-to-day experience. Uh, Again, sure, there are times where we're just present, but how many of us can really say that we're not constantly wanting something different? And so these four um, categories, so to speak, give us a sense of where or what our clinging is about. We're clinging or pushing away. Constantly clinging, grabbing, grasping, pulling in towards us or pushing, pushing away from us. And this is the inherent cause of our dissatisfaction. And so then that's number two. And then number three is that this dissatisfaction Can end. That's the third noble truth, is that there's an end to it, that it can be worked with. And so, this third noble truth is often stated that uh, there's a way out of suffering. There's a way out of suffering. That's usually how it's stated. And I was thinking about that, and it's not quite true. I don't think it's not quite true because when somebody hears that there's a way out of suffering, they'll say, oh, good, good. And they begin to look for the door, right? Where, where's, where's the way out? Where's the way out? And if I could just find that way out, I'll, I'll get through and then I can leave it all behind me and then be on cloud nine, right? Right. But of course, it's not just about suffering. It's it's not just about getting out. In fact, that's a complete, uh, really a complete corruption of the understanding. That actually is suffering, looking for the way out. You can, more accurately, you could say that what the third noble truth is really about is transcending suffering. So, what does it mean to transcend suffering? Transcend satisfaction. You, people people uh, get a sense of this in the Zendo, that especially during retreat, during Sashin, when you're sitting hour and hour after hour, the, the pain builds, the physical pain in your knees, back, you know, whatever. But there are moments when people so completely lose themselves in the practice that the pain psh, is gone. Because they're so involved in the present moment, into their practice, that there's there's no real pain, so to speak. There's no suffering, so to speak. The commentary on the pain has stopped. The internal commentary. Oh, poor me. You know, oh, I can't wait till the bell rings, you know and so it's it's a little window into what we could do more often and so that's a transcending suffering it's not ending of suffering but it's in in the same sense it's it, but it's really a transcendence now one may think that transcending means that we can get up and walk away and again that's not really end of that, that, what that is, is the ending, when we walk away from things in our life, that is the ending of that suffering, right? But it does nothing for the greater suffering of our life. So practice really is about noticing that no matter what I do in my life, no matter how carefully I or, uh, arrange the pieces on the board, that we're still in the same boat. So that brings us so so there's a way to transcend suffering and how do we do that? The Buddha said that there's a path. There's a way. There's a there's a way and and if you follow it, it, it will it'll help you transcend suffering, and that's the eightfold noble path. It's often pictured as like a wheel with eight spokes. If you see a Buddhist symbol of a wheel with eight delineations, that's that's the eightfold path. Um, and so, if we took a look at that, um, you could say, in a way, that the Eightfold Path is the dynamic of the Third Noble Truth. It's the way that unfolds that the end of suffer- there's an end of suffering. Well, the, the, the way that unfolds is through the Eightfold Path, and you can divide these eight categories into three major. Um, or these eight things into three major categories or groups. And I know people are probably thinking what are the eightfold what are the eight? And if uh, try not to jump ahead of me because I know people are thinking okay there's right people that know these already. Um, These three groups that the eight fall into are the three essentials of Buddhism which are as I said a few weeks ago morality wisdom, and meditation. These are the three legs or essentials of Buddhism. Morality, wisdom, and meditation. So let's take a look at and run through them one by one. Okay. So the wisdom group. Let's start with the wisdom group. The wisdom group has two of the eightfold path in it. Just two. There's right understanding and right thought. And right is kind of virtuous or correct. That's another term. So right understanding and right thought. So right understanding, number one. This is the sort of beginning of the path. Right understanding means coming out of delusion. We're all deluded. (laughs) Uh, And recognizing that we are is what right understanding is about. Recognizing how our minds are, as the Buddha said, turned upside down with delusive thinking. They were inverted. But even when we recognize it, we've got a problem. Because most of us, when we recognize we're wrong, or we recognize we're kind of going the wrong direction, or deluded, we don't like it. You we know, don't like the, that fact that we're uh, that suddenly our model of the world or of other people is is not right, and so for most of us we resist the the notion that we we're, we're wrong. Um, but it's important to um, recognize that. There are different levels of delusion. Um, and we won't get into that in too much detail. I don't want to spend too much time on each either each one of these things. But just to say that um, oftentimes people recognize that their life isn't working before they come to practice. So this waking up is to our delus- delusive thinking often happens before we even get on the path. It's like things aren't working for us and some, something happens in our life where we go, oh man, this something I'm doing is just not, why is this not working? And so we begin to look for a path. We begin to look for a path. And this is the beginning of right understanding. But deeper than that, coming out of delusion is really coming out of this dream world that we all live in. And I've said it time and time again from a Zen point of view this deluded state of mind this dream world that we're in is this illusion of self and other. Of separateness. As Kapila Roshi used to say "A wor- we're, we're alone and afraid in a world I never made. Like we all feel separate. But that Feeling is an illusion. That, or the feeling may be real, but the idea behind it is an illusion. That we're, there's no such thing as a separate self. And that's why it's called awakening, because we awaken to something different. We awaken to the underlying wholeness of what's here. The other element to right understanding, which I think is just as important, if not more, is actually about caring. It's caring that there is something different. Because you can wake up to the fact that your life isn't working, or that you're wrong, and you can just ignore it. You can just choose not to do anything about it. There are lots of people like that. Lots of people know that something's not right in their life or that their way of thinking is kind of crazy. But yet, they just choose not just to go about their business. And so, and a crucial element about right understanding is deciding that there's something, that we have to do something about it. You know, And in terms of Zen this is where the rubber meets the road because there are a lot of what I would call armchair Buddhists. Meaning, lots of people like Buddhism. They get something from it. Meaning, intellectually, they they love reading about it. Right? They'll read till the cows come home, but it really doesn't do anything for them because they're not practicing it. And so, um, you have to care. You have to care um and caring means doing. From a Zen point of view, if you're if you're if you're not doing, you're not you're, you don't really care. To be honest, you know it's like oh you, you care about somebody, but yet when they're sick, are you doing something for them? Um. So really, Zen is about doing and doing is caring not all the time sometimes you can just go through the motions in doing something but but really it's about walking the path and so we have to we have to check in with ourselves is this really something that we're going to be practicing so another the other basic way of seeing right understanding is having heard the teachings this is the sort of classic like funda um, the Theravadan view is about right understanding is I've heard the teachings so I I, I sort of I'm getting set straight. But again, you can hear something but not really have heard it. Right? Do you know what I mean by that? Like, you can hear something but not really have heard it. There's a an early American poet named uh, Michael Wigglesworth and I'm sure a lot of people have not heard of um, an old uh, Quake, uh, no, Quaker, Puritan poet. Way, goes way back, like early 1800s. Um, and he was, he was kind of a crazy guy in a lot of ways. But he, he did say something which was really, I think, applicable here. He said, um, if you hear with your ears closed, then nothing will happen. I love that. If you hear with your ears closed, nothing's going to happen. Okay, so let's go on to the second. Right thought or right motivation. That's another way to put it. Some of these words are interesting. Uh, Right motivation or right thought. It's also going to be right intention. So in Buddhist terms, this is our aspiration towards practice. motivation but then we have to look at what does it mean to have right motivation or correct motivation like isn't motivation motivation you know what if you're motivated isn't it just a basic thing but in zen terms in buddhist terms we have we want to look at what is really motivating like what's behind our initial thought that i'm motivated what's what's really driving us for example In Zen, we may say, well, I want to have enlightenment. Okay, let's examine that for a second. I want to have enlightenment. Do you see there's a fundamental issue there? I want to have enlightenment. Me. Well, that's that's the problem, (laughs) is craving, right? And so we can be motivated towards something and not really get that, the way we're motivated is really getting in the way of what we're trying to achieve. Um, What does it mean to say that we're practicing for enlightenment? Like, is it for ourselves? Do we practice for ourselves? Sure, on a a relative level, yeah. We're trying to get calm, more centered, more grounded in our life. But, But if we're practicing for this small self... Then isn't that a pretty shallow way of practicing, a reason to practice? Because this little self is really the exact thing that's in question here. It's the it's the thing being interrogated <laughs> through practice, right? It's the one that's in the hot seat, this little self. So it's gotta be something bigger than that for to be to have correct motivation or correct thought or right thought. The way I like to think about it is we're practicing for others. <clears throat> At some point we wake up, as we get older, we wake up to re- and realize that everybody is suffering in similar ways that we are. We're all on the same boat in the same boat. And so we, the older we get, the more we tune into that if we're open. And then that becomes our motivation for practice because we realize, too, that we have an influence on people. What we do with our life does impact other people, even if we don't realize it's impacting other people. It is. Every interaction we have is interacting is in influencing other people. We practice because we don't know the kind of influence we're having on other people, and if we're sensitive to that, we—it's not that we become hyper vigilant, but we become mindful of how we're living our life. Because uh, the—you know—what's that old thing? The butterfly effect. The, remember this thing from? Physics or something that a butterfly flapping its wings in China uh, creates a, a, a weather patterns in North America because it's like this const, this sort of, how would you say, it? this um, constant or this unfolding of, of this little wind just builds and builds and builds and builds until it hits North America. I think we can think of our lives like that. We're sending out ripples constantly and those ripples might be weak but they are reaching the shore. They are influencing other people. To think that we're separate and that what we do with our life is not, uh, not going to impact others is really, again, back to that diluted way of thinking. The way we know we're making spiritual progress if we can speak of that is really when we come to regard the, that the way we regard others and the, is the way we regard ourselves, and the way we regard ourselves is the way we should regard others, that they're interchangeable. We become less self-absorbed. And, and, and to be clear, it's not a way that neglects the self we're not neglecting ourselves but we're less self-absorbed so that's that's right thought so together right thought and right understanding are that wisdom that be, that wisdom of practice so moving on the, to the morality strand which is pretty pretty easy to understand right speech right action and right livelihood so there's three out of the eight. So we've already had two. Now we're on to the next three, which are the morality strand: right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So let's start with right speech. And if you go to classic Buddhism, it's really delineated. It's pretty, pretty spelled out. You know, things like stay away from slandering people. <laughs> Don't gossip but let's look at it a little more. Try to be specific when you're communicating. Here's a big one for a lot of people. Learn when to shut up. Like, learn when being quiet is actually right speech. And I I, I don't want to come across as harsh, but really a lot of us could learn to speak less. And to be more careful with the words that we choose, learning when to, what you're going to say might not be helpful—that's that's a hard one. So practicing right speech is is a part of this path. Right action. And, and by the way, I think you know, with this precept study that we'll be doing in the spring, or coming up soon, we'll be getting into the different precepts around speech and why they're important. Right action comes, um, is delineated through the five major precepts, which is not killing, I'm simplifying things, but not killing, not stealing, not lying, not using sex, and not misusing drugs or alcohol. So those are the sort of five basic precepts in in Buddhism. But let's look a little deeper at right action. I was thinking about right action in terms of things. How is it that we treat things? You 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 could say that this is kind of a mindfulness practice, but really it's deeper than that. Right action is noticing how we um, misuse things. There's this interesting concept in Islam called zulm. Um, A Friend uh, who's a Muslim chaplain uh, talked about this thing called zulm. If you're not, if you're practicing zulm, you're not a good Muslim. You try to get your kids not to do zulm, And what that means is that Allah created the world in a way where things had their proper place. And when we mistreat things, misuse things, we're doing zulm. When we're not treating things with respect, we're, we're doing zulm. You know, when we plop ourselves up onto the kitchen table, you know, that's zol. Because the kitchen table is meant to be eaten at, not sat on. Now, that's a real basic thing. Well, I was thinking, you know, I do this all the time. I used to do carpentry, so using a screwdriver as a pry bar mm-hmm. <laughs> its the only thing I got, right? That's zol. It's not the proper use because I'm too lazy to get up and get the pry bar, so I use what I got. Now you could say, well, that's not being creative. You should be able to be creative. Okay, that's that's fine. But not just things. But how do we misuse our speech? How do we misuse sex? Again, how do we misuse alcohol? How do we misuse others? So working in a mindful way to really take care of things. You see this um, in people. It, I again, I'm not. I'm. I'm Guilty here you know where you're kind of taking care of yourself uh, you get up every morning you dress dot, dot dot you you take care of keeping your place clean and all this stuff and then as soon as everybody's gone like every your vacation comes and you're by yourself, everything goes to hell <laughs> you know you're sh- like you're not showering, you're not shaving it's just like uh. so that would be zone that's not practicing right action. So it's a, like, it's kind of, and the the danger is here we become puritanical. Of course, we become um, like things have to be a certain way, like a rigidity. And of course, that's not it. Okay, so on to the next one. Right livelihood, and this is of course tr- traditionally not to deal in arms. <laughs> I don't think we, I don't have too many people here dealing in arms. Um, not to. Uh, deal in uh, slavery, <laughs> uh, but really, let's you think about how that could be expanded on. Mm-hmm. Do you do you use people, right? So look below the surface. So that some of these more orthodox ways of putting things, you have to look below. You know, uh, not to trade in meat and, and alcohol. What does that mean? It's, this one's really hard because we live in such a complex modern environment that right livelihood is really a hard thing to get a hold on because we, don't, we can't necessarily see all the circumstances of how our jobs, how our livelihood is impacting others. It's, you know, especially if you're working for like a major corporation, how do you know? You know, I am thinking Kodak, for example, or in Rochester, where I came from, you know, they, at one point, Kodak made like 60,000 products. And one of them was laser pointing devices for bombs. But if you're in the camera division <laughs> making Polaroid, you know, is your division contributing to um, uh, destroying the world? You know, it's really complicated. But we do have to have the courage to look at ourselves and look at how um, what we're doing for a living uh, might be uh, contributing to suffering. And then another part of right livelihood actually is the mind state in which how we do our jobs. Are we always pissed off, you know, when we're helping other people? You know. Are we are we wait, are we are we watching the clock every minute as tick 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 tick, tick waiting for the end to happen, you know, the end of the day? That wouldn't be practicing right livelihood. So it's not just what we're doing, but how we're doing it. That's important. That's right livelihood. Okay. Let's move on. Right mindfulness and right concentration. So these two make up the meditation strand. These are the last... Or actually, there's three. Right mindfulness, right concentration, and then right effort. And these three make up the meditation strand of the Eightfold Path. So right mindfulness. That is one's presence, being present. So there are a few ways that we're not present. Generally three. We're either lost in the past. Well, And when we're lost in the past, it's usually not a good thing. We're not usually reminiscing about the pleasantness of our past. Usually we're beating ourselves up. Usually. Not always, but usually we're we're in regret when we're in the past. Now, regret has a purpose because it can help us move forward in a helpful way. But what this is talking about really is ruminating, beating ourselves up over and over again, going back to the past. I I wish it could have been different. And so that's one way. The second way is going off to the future. Right? Always thinking about the future. But the thing about the future is is it doesn't exist. There's no such thing as the future. It's just a map. And so again, what we're doing is we're just uh, moving imaginary pieces around the board. And we're spending our time doing that. Um, It's really wasting our time. Not that we're against planning, but um, when we're planning, are we just planning or are we spending a lot of our time planning when we're doing other things? So that's the future. And then the third way is we're just in la-la land, kind of checked out. So those three ways, uh, when, we're, when we're in one of those conditions, we're, we're not here, we're not present So right right concentration. So what does that mean? Concentration really is about one's alert alertness, being alert. Which means we don't screen out the world, but rather the world is the world. We swallow the world and the world we practice it with it in our gut. Zen, the practice of sitting meditation, it's not, we're not excluding other things when we're doing practice. We're not excluding other things. Because that's what we do all the time, if you think about it. That's those four conditions in the beginning. I want to be with somebody else that I'm not with. I don't want to be with the person that I am now, etc. That's exclusionary. But Zazen is inclusionary. We swallow the whole world. in Zazen in concentration is really about staying focused on what we want to stay focused on. But everything else is still present. Everything else is still here. It's like peripheral vision. You know, imagine looking out on a lake, like Lake Ontario, and you see a ship, you know, like at way out on the horizon, like barely visible. And and so you're tracking it. It's it's there. You're, you're, but if you... If you take your eyes off of it, you're going to lose it because the lake's so big. Um, And when you're when you're focused on it, you're focused, but you're still seeing the whole lake. You're still seeing the waves. You're still, but you're not concentrating on that. You're concentrating on the ship. And this is what we're learning to do when we sit, is we're learning to stay focused, concentrated on the koan or the breath or whatever might be our practice. Uh, But we're not shutting out the world. This is why we don't close our eyes in Zen practice. A lot of meditation practice, they close their eyes, and it's kind of like, i got to go into this interior landscape of the mind. But Zen is different. We're keeping our eyes lowered, so we're not excluding the external world, but we're not focusing on it either. That's what makes Zazen different. So we're alert to our circumstances, The other thing about concentration in terms of Zen is there has to be a consistency with it. There should be a consistency with your ability to concentrate. This is this is um, important when we talk about zazen because um, people often will be able to concentrate for a couple minutes, and then what happens is they give it up. They 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 they, they practice hard. They're really concentrated for five minutes, and then they go whoa. I'm done. <laughs> you know, that was that was good. That was really good. So I'm really getting good at this. Right? And then, of course, you're off into thought. So concentration is about consistent effort over and over and over again. Okay. So I want to go back really quickly now and read these. So remember, these three categories, wisdom, morality, and meditation of the Eightfold Path. So there's right understanding, right thought or effort. I mean, right thought or right motivation. Right speech, right action, right livelihood, right mindfulness, right concentration, and right effort. Did we do effort? No, we didn't really do effort. Okay, so effort. What does it mean to make an effort? Again, this comes back to what I was saying about concentrating over time, this consistency. Most people do not make much of an effort in their meditation. Most people assume that meditation is the absence of effort. In other words, I'm just going to chill. This is not Zen practice. It's not that it's a straining. This is not effort. Effort in Zen is human effort. It's, it's, achievable effort. It's not superhuman effort. But most people, I, I'm, from my experience could make more effort in their practice, meaning they could be more consistent like they could be uh, they could be sitting every day, they could be sitting for longer periods, they could be in- integrating their practice more into their life. They could be putting more conscious effort into their practice. Okay, so that's enough effort for now. Um, so stepping back from these, here's a common trap with the Eightfold Path. One of the common traps of the Eightfold Path is that we practice some of them, but we don't practice all of them. For example, like in Theravadin Buddhism, there's a real emphasis on um, the morality piece like, they're really good at not eating meat, you know. They're really good at keeping the precepts of not speaking in in harmful ways and not killing and not uh, lying or stealing. So they're kind of really focused on the morality piece of the Eightfold Path. Us Zen folks are a little different. We actually, I think, from my understanding... Um, we tend to focus on more the meditation side of things and maybe the wisdom side of things. You know, we like to practice right concentration and right mindfulness and awareness and stuff. But usually what we, what we neglect is more of the, the behavioral side, the, the morality piece. You see this where, you know, people are um, practicing meditation a lot but they're going out and eating meat all the time and uh, drinking all the time and but we have well because this is a Zen center we really need to look carefully at those areas of the Eightfold Path where we, where we could use some work. We all we all could use work in, in these areas. You know, like when we're eating meat, for example, um, are you aware of this of, of you know, when there's an animal uh, that you're eating, that has to be replaced, and so what's going to happen? Uh, something else gets killed. Um, you're supporting an industry. You're supporting th- these forces that uh, may be out of line with the Buddhist path. Again, I'm not. I'm, I'm not a moralistic. I'm trust me. Like I, I'm not um, saying that you should give up these things, but just to be to be aware of what of, of your impact. And to that Theravadan monk, how would it be to, to, for them to see you uh, practicing Buddhism in this way, of emphasizing meditation and concentration that we do in Zen, but not um, really being mindful of these other things, of right action and these moral side of things? How would it be for them to see that you're trampling over these other aspects of the path. So what we can really do is, what we really need to do is be better at tracking our actions and activities beyond the immediate behavior. Like, what is this, how is this going to impact, as again, like I said before, how is this going to ripple out into the world, my my my, my life? So with these, though, if this is not a formula, we should be careful about turning this into a formula. That's how it's usually seen. Okay, there's suffering, and then there's, this is the cause of suffering, and if I just practice these eight, this is the formula to get out of suffering. That, that's a good place to start, but we, we don't want to take that to be the end. What the Eightfold Path really is, is a reminder that our practice has to function in the world. That it's not simply about meditation. It's really about being more alert, more of the time, about our life, about our life energy. How it is, how is it? It's a way for us to embrace a mind state, a larger mind state of openness, of sensitivity, of generosity, of courage, of gentleness, you know, of compassion really it becomes a place to work on all of these things to continually this is to be continually aware of how we are in this web and when we move it's you know think about this imagine a web when we move in the web the whole web moves you know the whole web shakes So how is it that we're doing that movement in our life? When we move well, the web moves well. When we move badly, the web moves badly. So if you're having trouble in your life, (laughs) what I recommend, if you're miserable, (laughs) I recommend begin to look at the Eightfold Path. Where is it that you could do some work? Get a copy of it, read it, study it, and then let it go from a Zen perspective. The, the, the jewel of mind, the jewel of this mind has many facets. It's a well-cut jewel. And... The eightfold path really are just eight facets. We can turn it and look at the jewel from this through this facet, and we can turn it and we can look at it through this facet. Right. So, so that's what the eightfold path is—a way to practice. Okay. So I've droned on for for a long time.